Take your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Luke, chapter 18. You having a good day? Yeah? It's been a good weekend, right? Tennessee won. I got a couple of text messages on Thursday that it was football time in Tennessee. No, that didn't happen until Saturday. Thursday was another game, but I won't mention Vanderbilt's loss. All right, I heard this story. I heard this story about a young boy, maybe you've heard it too, that went into a drugstore. And he walked up to the pharmacist and he said, I need three boxes of candy. I need a small one, a medium one, and a large one. And the pharmacist said, well, son, what, what are you doing? He, he said, well, he said, I've, I've got a date tonight with this girl that I've been kind of talking to a little bit. And I'm going over to her house to eat. And then after we eat, we're going out on a date. And if she lets me hold her hand, I'm going to give her the small box of candy. If she lets me kiss her on the cheek, I'll give her the medium box of candy. And if she lets me really kiss her, I'm going to give her the big box of candy. So he got the three boxes, he put them in the car, he went over to the house a little bit later, you know, after he'd gotten all gussied up and ready to go, and he walks into the house, sits down at the dinner table, and they get ready to pray, and he says, can I please say the prayer? So he begins to pray. And for five minutes, he gives one of the most eloquent prayers you have ever heard. Goes in and out of theology and thankfulness and gratitude and praise. And when he gets through, the girl leans on to him and goes, wow, you never told me you were so religious. And he looked at her and said, you never told me your dad was a pharmacist. Some of y'all get that about lunch. Here we are. Prayers are motivated by different things, right? Situations, places, they're just motivated by different things. Well, today we're going to continue in our series of red letter prayers. And we're going to talk about not, not necessarily a time when Jesus prayed, or even when he taught how to pray, as much as he talked about praying. And we're going to look today at a story, or actually three stories, that are back to back to back in Luke chapter 18, that I believe gives us some important truths about the way that we pray. And the first thing I want us to do is just kind of walk through these stories. And, and here's what I want to do today. I want to walk through these stories and at the end of each story kind of give the lesson Jesus teaches. But let them show you that they build upon one another. And the first story starts there in Luke chapter 18 in verse 1. It says, he told them a parable on the need for them to pray always and not become discouraged. So right there, what is the purpose of this story he's about to tell? Encourage them to what? Pray and not be discouraged, right? So right from the beginning, we sometimes with parables, we get the lesson at the end. Sometimes with parables, we don't really know what the lesson is. We have to figure it out for ourselves. But right at the beginning, Jesus says, or the writer Luke tells us that the reason Jesus told them this parable was so that they would remember to always pray and to not become discouraged. So then he starts, he says, there was a judge in a certain town who didn't fear God or respect men. Now, just quickly, could there be a worse description of a judge? I mean, if you were going before a judge and someone said, here's what you need to know about that judge. 
they don't fear God and they don't respect men. They don't like men. They don't like God. You're just like, this is not a good day. So there's this judge and in town he's known as in a Jewish community. These would have been the two worst things you could be. In fact, Jesus says that you can sum up all of the law in how, what way? We are to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and spirit and love our neighbor. This man does neither. Now, I'm not going to ask you if you know anybody like this because I don't want you pointing people out, all right? But this is not a good guy. He's a judge. Now, I want you to get out of your mind what you typically think of when you think of the word judge. Because most of us, when we hear the word judge, we think nice building, columns, guy in a black robe, sitting up on high. That's not what a judge would have been in their day and time. A judge in their day and time would have been in a tent. He would have been sitting there. He would have had some trusted advisors around him. And in order to get to the judge, you would have had to know somebody or you would have had to have the right currency. So there's the judge. Jesus says in verse 3, there's also a widow in that town who kept coming to him saying, give me justice against my adversary. Now, as opposed to this power-wielding, unfriendly, no-respecting judge, we have a lowly, desperate, poor, powerless widow who apparently has someone in town that is out to get her an enemy an adversary someone who is making her life difficult someone whose job they have taken upon to make her miserable that is the picture we have we have the powerful the power wielding the authoritative judge and the powerless Widow. Now, just to let you know, when it comes to the widow in their society, she would have had three strikes against her. First of all, she was a woman. And women did not have good standing in society or in the judge's tent. Secondly, she was a widowed woman, which meant that her husband, who would have been with her, could not come and stand with her. She was going to have to stand by herself. And the only way a woman really got to be heard from in a court was with her husband standing beside her, testifying on her behalf. But not only is she a woman who is widowed, she is poor. Because widows in that day, I mean, widows today have difficult lives, but on the whole, they are much better off financially, security-wise, than women who were widows in this society. Now, also get it, understand that in their society, women were often widowed in their early to mid-30s. She's got an adversary. She needs help. She goes to the judge. What does the judge say? Verse 4 tells us. For a while, that's an important phrase, he was unwilling. But later he said to himself, because really in this judge's mind, all that matters is himself. Even though I don't fear God. Now remember this is, by the way, this is a parable. Remember that? So this didn't actually happen. This is Jesus Given a story. Even though I don't fear God or respect man, yet because this widow keeps pestering me, I will give her justice so she doesn't wear me out by her persistent coming. So what's the moral of the story? Pester somebody till they give in. At least that's what, I mean, some of you live that out in your marriages, right? Anybody want to 
volunteer your mate? Okay, probably not. All right. Some some people have that experience with their grandchildren or their children, right? Just the moral of this story is pester until they give in. So if we're taking this as a parable, some people take this and say, oh, this is what the the parable has always got double meaning, right? It doesn't just mean what it says. And if that's what this means, then in this story, who is the judge? Who do people say? People say it's God, right? That's that's the judge because he's got the authority and we are the the widow. So the moral of the story, they say, when you pray, is just pester God till he gives in. Does that sound right? I mean, really? Have you ever heard that? Maybe not in that particular way, but be persistent, persistent, persistent. What the problem is with that is that means we haven't read the next verse. Which is kind of important, right? Because Jesus interprets it. Look at verse six. Then the Lord said, listen to what the unjust judge says. Will not God grant justice as his elect who cry out to him day and night? Will he delay to help them? I tell you that he will swiftly grant them justice. So here's the point. God is not the judge. God is the opposite of the judge. We are not the widow. We are the opposite of the widow. And it is a parable in contrast that says if an evil judge who doesn't respect God or care about people will give in with persistence, why do you think a loving God who has children that he cares about won't jump at the chance to help them? Right? That's what that verse says, right? Are you with me? Are you just kind of here? All right. That's what that says, right? Now, listen, I've been guilty of reading. You know, you get you get devotional books and they just give you part of the passage and people will leave this part out. And it does sound like just keep praying, push until something happens. Pray until something happens. Now, I'm not saying that persistent prayer is important because it is. But the way we pray, we talked about this the last two weeks. It's not give me, give me, give me, God, I'm going to wear you down. It's not my children and toys are us pulling on my shirt until I listen to them and beg me 400 times that they need that new Skylander or something like that. That's not what it is. The lesson here is not just to pray always, as Jesus says. That's kind of understood. We should be consistently in prayer, consistently in an attitude of prayer. The point is that we can pray with confidence. God cares about us. He loves us. He wants us to to come to Him. He wants us to have the things that we need. And so we go to the Father. It is not like we are trying to bend His arm and twist it until He finally says give and He turns over and hands us whatever we want. When I was growing up, most of you all know, I have a brother that is five and a half years older than me. And my brother that is five and a half years older than me was always bigger than me. And for most of my life, I could never get him in a position where he would say, uncle. You know what I mean, right? Now, he could do that to me on a regular basis. But I remember one time in particular that he caught unexpectedly by the stealth 
ninja assassin that I am, got him in a position where he could not get out, and he began to yell, let me go, let me go, let me go. And I savored that moment. Some people think that's what they got to do with God. Can I tell you something? You can't sneak up on God, and you can't get him in a position he can't get out of. So pestering him till he gives in is not going to happen. At the same time, that doesn't mean you stop praying. You go with him in confidence, knowing he wants to do what is best for you. Two times in the Gospels, Jesus says, if a father knows how to give good gifts, why do you think God wouldn't want to give you good stuff? Go with confidence. Pray. Then he tells this next parable. He also told this parable to some. And these are the some. Who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and looked down on everyone else. Two men went up to the temple complex to pray. One a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. It goes on to say in verse 11. The Pharisee took his stand and was praying like this. God, I thank you I'm not like other people. I'm not greedy. I'm not unrighteous. I'm not an adulterer or even like this tax collector over here. Lord, you know, I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of everything I get. Verse 13. But the tax collector standing far off would not even raise his eyes to heaven, but kept striking his chest and saying, God, turn your wrath from me, a sinner. Two more people, right? Pharisee, tax collector. Now, for a moment, I need you to put yourself in a first century mindset, which means that you're going to forget everything negative that Jesus says about the Pharisees. You're going to be a person in that society who looked to the Pharisees as the model of consistency and religious fervor. The one that everyone looked at and said, they've got it all together. And look what this guy says. Go back a a verse, if you will, John, to the one before that. Let's get past the first part that makes everybody mad right off the start, right? I mean, aren't you glad you're not like him, saying that he's glad he's not like other people? Some of you will get that later, too. I mean, some of us do look at this passage, whoo, I'm glad I'm not like him. Look at him praying he's not like other people. I am glad I'm not like him. I thank you I'm not like other people. But look what he says. I'm not greedy. I just, I just take what I have. I'm not unrighteous. I, I do everything I can to follow the law. I'm, I'm a faithful husband, father. I even do everything I can to, to fast not once. I go above and beyond. I go twice a week. I set aside time to fast. And I give my tithe. Most of us would look at this church member going, whew, that's a good looking church member. I mean, he's doing what he's supposed to do. He's not greedy. He's not causing problems. He's doing everything he can to work in the ministries and the places of the church. He's not. He's faithful to his family. He's faithful to his wife. I mean, this is the kind of guy we hold up and say, this is who we want to be. And the tax collector just walks in in verse 13 and says, just have mercy on me. Now, who were tax collectors in those days? 
they were so bad that Jesus didn't even get lumped in with them. You know, when people saw Jesus eating with people, they didn't say, look at him eating with all the sinners. No, they said sinners and even tax collectors. They're that bad. They were hated, despised, traitorous. And he just looks not even to the sky, stands away from everyone else, beats his chest and says, have mercy on me, O God. Second thing that we see in this series of parables that Jesus tells is we are to pray with confidence. But that confidence must come with humility as well. None of us deserve to be able to come into the presence of God Almighty. Amen? I mean, God tells us to pray with confidence. And the only reason we can pray with confidence is because God tells us to pray with confidence. There is nothing good within us. Now, I don't think this means that you don't try to strive to do things that are pleasing to God. Obviously, that's part of it. But when we come to prayer, we come with humility. We don't come bending God's arm because we know better. We don't come because we want to inflict pain on other people because we like the way we do things and we don't like the way they do things. We come because God has given us the opportunity to come. And we handle that privilege with care. We should pray with confidence and humility. Coming before the Lord with our head bowed. Coming before one another realizing that none of us are better than anybody else. And because of that, we all have equal standing before the Lord for those of us who have chosen to believe in His Son. I joked about us saying, aren't we glad we're not like the Pharisee who says he's glad he's not like other people? But... Part of the issue as believers in Christ is we often find ourselves in positions of thinking, aren't we glad we're not like? All you got to do is watch the evening news. And it's easy to feel that kind of self-righteousness bubbling up towards the surface. All you got to do is watch popular entertainment. And it's easy to feel that self-righteousness bubbling up to the surface. Maybe it's not just, boy, I'm glad I'm not like. It's, boy, I'm glad my kids aren't like. Or, boy, I'm glad my grandchildren aren't like. I'm not saying we shouldn't be excited or proud when our kids follow the Lord. But to think that we're any different than anybody else, or on a higher plane than anybody else, undercuts the power of the blood of Jesus that saved all of us who are desperately broken before Him. We pray with confidence only because God has told us to pray with confidence, with humility, realizing that nobody out there is underneath us. And he tells the last story to kind of further this humility thing, but then to teach us another lesson. It says in the scripture that there were some people who were even bringing infants to him. Now, I just want you to know that that is not a... a um, like today, politicians want to kiss babies, right? They want those photo opportunities. That is not what was happening in their day. The, the way this ought to be read is, there were even people bringing infants to him. Like, what good is that going to do? And we get from other places that the disciples were like, Jesus, tell them to leave. Get those kids away. 
You see, we have a, sometimes as a culture, we have an, um, an unhealthy, exalted view of children. In their day, they had an unhealthy, belittling view of children. Some people were even bringing infants to him so that he might touch them. But when the disciples saw it, they rebuked him. Now think about that for a minute. How far along are we in this story? What chapter are we in? Luke 18, right? That means how many chapters have come before this? Just always good to have a math lesson, right? So we're pretty far into the sermon here. I mean, into Jesus' life here. We are pretty far into the sermon too, but we're pretty far into Jesus' life here. We get to this point. By now, don't you think the disciples ought to know better than to rebuke Jesus? We don't ever kind of say to Jesus, boy, I wish it would go this way instead of the way you're going. They rebuked him. Verse 16 tells us. Jesus, however, invited them and said, let the little children. What kind of little children? We're talking about little children. We're talking about preschoolers. We're talking about infants. Come to me and don't stop them because the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. That was a countercultural statement that would have blown people away. No, 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 it doesn't, Jesus. The kingdom of God belongs to people that know the Bible forward and backward, that practice all of the 600 rules that come after the Bible, that tell us how to live the Bible. They are the most intellectual people in our society. Jesus says, no, these children are the ones to whom the kingdom belongs to. Then he says, this is the reason, verse 17. I assure you, Whoever does not welcome the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. The picture he gives is that as believers, we ought to have a faith that is similar to the dependence of a child on its parents. How many of you have ever been a child? Yeah, I question that on some of you, yeah. How many of you remember what it's like to be in childhood or remember what it's like to be in second childhood, whatever it would be? All right. We don't necessarily remember it, but we've seen it in our own children or grandchildren or nieces or nephews or people that we help here at church. That children, as they are young, are completely dependent upon their parents. Right. Right. They just trust. I think about my own kids. I say, let's get in the car, and they don't have a say on where we go. But they just trust that it's going to happen. You know, one of the things that's happened now with Eli, Eli's getting to be, he's 10 going on about 40, right? At least intellectually. And Eli is now old enough and big enough to ride in the front seat with me. And Eli has given me some driving tips. Now, Susan, I expect that from occasionally, and sometimes I need it. But used to, Eli just got in the back and trusted Dad would get us there, right? But even as I see that, I see in Eli a change happening where that simple trust and faith is turning into question and wonder and wanting to know answers. I'm not saying that all investigation of Scripture and of God and of Christ is wrong. In fact, I think it is needed But at the same time, there comes a time when we just have to say, I trust him. We pray with confidence, humility, and complete, simple faith. 
You just trust God's going to do what's best. You lay your concerns, you lay your request, you lay all those things at His feet, and then you just trust He's going to do what's best. So how's your prayer life? And I don't mean that in a guilty kind of way because I don't want to guilt you into praying. But are you willing just to enter into a place where you don't have to beg the judge, convince him, twist his arm till he comes to your way. You can just go in with confidence and say, God, I know you love me. I know you trust or you care about me. I know you want my best interest. I know you have a big plan, a huge plan. And you know how I work in the midst of that. And I know all of that, but I'm bringing this request to you. Humbly, not saying that it's what has to happen, not saying that I'm questioning your judgment, just humbly bringing it to you. And I believe that you're going to do what's right. Simple, effective prayer. Let's pray together.